0: Take your Bible and turn with me, please, to John chapter number 5, the book of John and chapter number 5. Hallelujah. It's amazing to me. I was talking with some good friends Friday night in our home about a young man that's been a blessing to me and a couple of young girls that's been a blessing to me across the miles and how they've got into my life and how they've given and learned to give of themselves. Here we've had three of our young people give of themselves this morning. If you want to see God bless, you start giving of yourself. And that don't have to be out of the pocketbook. You just start giving of yourself. God will get right in the middle of that giving of yourself unto him. And uh, so I want to say again, Colby, thank you. Drew, thank you. And Ava, I think maybe she stepped out, but I'm grateful for how she gave of herself this morning. And uh, what a blessing. And uh, and Greg, thank you for playing the bass. I don't want you to get your feelings hurt, brother. <laughs> <laughs> what well, about that, Warren, got to watch him. Watch him. It's a blessing to me. I see what y'all don't see. Uh, Setting up here, I sat over there for two years. I sat over there. there was a no reason behind it. I did. I did that. I wanted to do that. I did that for two years. First two years here. Uh, we're closing in on twelve years here. And, uh, and I knew what I was missing, not sitting up front, seeing your faces and countenances. And Oftentimes I see um, bright expressions, tears, uh, rejoicing in your own way, and that's a blessing. I thought maybe we were to have a ded- baby dedication this morning. I looked back there and saw Ray and Mary Owen holding a, ba- holding a baby. I thought, my word, I have a lot to be thankful for. Even Ray thought that was funny. Uh, do, um, do pray for our expectant mothers um, in our church. Do pray for them and their families, their husbands, these little ones that they are about to give birth to. Pray for health, strength, and safety and rest. Uh, I'm praying for them. I hope you pray for them. And we need to pray one for another. John chapter 5, as you find verse 8, would you stand with me, please? John chapter 5 verse 8 let's read down through verse number 18 I want to preach really the introduction to the open persecution of Christ from the Jewish leaders as it begins here in this chapter the open persecution We'll say some what of um, what he's already felt and sensed and known and we've seen already in the message, but I'm not going to try to preach verse 8 through 47 today. I'm not going to try to do that, but the Lord will, and we're going to revisit this next week. This is look number 38 into the life of Christ, John 5, verse 8 through 18. The Bible says, Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made whole, and took up his bed, and walked, and on the same day was the Sabbath. The Jews, therefore, said unto him that was cured, It is the Sabbath day. It is not lawful for thee to carry thy bed. He answered them, He that made me whole. The same said unto me, Take up thy bed and walk. Then asked they him, What man is that which said unto thee, Take up thy bed and walk? Now they knew who it was. They knew who told him. They knew who healed it. Verse 13 And he that was healed wist not who it was, for Jesus had conveyed himself away, a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus went looking for him. Is that what it says? Afterward, Jesus findeth him in the temple, and saith unto him, Behold, thou art made whole, sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus which had made him whole. And therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him, because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. But Jesus answered them, My father worketh hitherto, and I work. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Thank you for standing. You be seated, please. This open persecution by the Jews. One thing you'll find, of course, you notice in verse number 10, it begins with the two words, the Jews. Often in John's gospel, uh, John will will use those two words, the Jews, to refer to the uh, Jewish leaders, um, the religious leaders among the Jews. And of course, they will lead the persecution against Christ. Um, in this chapter, of course, this open persecution begins, and we'll speak I trust I can get it all preached next week. If not, I'm just going to preach the introduction to it today. But um, the open persecution of our Lord, it's made known here in verse number 8 down through, really verse 10 through 18, they want to kill him. It's no secret. It's out now. They're open with it. They want to kill him. They have observed him. They have discussed him. They have talked among themselves about him. But now it's open. It's going to be open. They want to kill him. It's no secret. Verses 17 through 29, there are some claims that our Lord makes. He is the Son of God. He is co-equal with the Father. He coexists. He is God. He makes those claims. They'll hate him the more because of it. As a matter of fact, the first claim he makes, they hate him the more because of it. And then in verse number 30 through 47, you'll find their testimonies given to Christ's person. John the Baptist is one that will offer testimony. The Father offers testimony. The Word of God offers testimony. The Lord's own works testify as to who He is. And He will read their title for them before He finishes this discourse. This actually is not the longest discourse of our Lord in Scripture, but it's one of the longer ones. As... Um, he discusses with those who oppose him um, of his own person. It's one of the, one of the greatest uh, Christological discourses in Scripture. There's no mistaking who he is. He is God, the Son of the Father, uh, God the Son. And uh, so there's no mistaking about it. And those last testimonies will verify and authenticate who he is. Um, I won't go back. I I normally do go back and review where we just left. Um, As a matter of fact, some of the men, I don't know that these men do it, some of the men that have been in our church and now are out pastoring, and then some of the men that's come through the classes over the years have spoken to me about picking up on that, that thing of review. Repetitious teaching is always profitable. We know best those things we're more familiar with and those Principles that we've had rehearsed in our presence. We know better scripture, those, that, those portions that we've had repeated to us and reviewed. And so it's a good principle. It's a good principle. But I won't, uh, I will, I'll forego that uh, today. But you remember the last time we looked four weeks ago into the life of Christ, the ministry of Christ. Uh, we looked at his healing of the impotent man. Uh, of course, I'm reading through several works uh, just now. Considering the life of Christ, Catherine Caldwell caught this whole chapter, I thought, well uh, with her bit of poetry. And I'll let her be my review, her words be my review this morning. Wilt Thou Be Made Whole, of course, is the title. There once was a man who had been ill quite a while. Depression had long ago stolen his smile. He had lain in Bethesda for 38 years with no man to help him or comfort his tears till one sabbath day a strange man said arise obedience then brought quite a surprise with a body turned strong and a heart full of blaze he went to the temple to give god his praise now naturally hearing of this latest news contempt was rekindled among leading jews the sabbaths profaned became their fierce shout forgetting what mercy and love are all about. And therefore they plotted this Jesus to slay for doing a work on their Sabbath day. Traditions of men can cause blindness of soul, so examine thyself, wilt thou be made whole. And may we all do the same. I thought she captured the chapter well in her bit of writing there. A miracle has just been performed by Jesus Christ in a man's life. It's been witnessed by a multitude here in John chapter number 5. The air should have been filled with shouting and rejoicing and laughter and pleasantries being exchanged. It should have been. When God does a work, I don't know about you. I suspect if you're walking with God that I know about you, if you belong to him. When God does a work in somebody's life, you relive the kindnesses he's shown to you. When God saves a soul, you'll recall Before very much time elapses when he saved your soul. When God does something unique for someone, you'll go back and you'll relive when God did something of the sort for you. It's just the way it works. It's the way it operates. It's buried within us and it resurfaces from time to time. We relive, do we not? We relive. You've heard me tell it again going on nearly 12 years. My wife and myself set up, she sets up later than I do. We've switched places over the years. I used to be the night owl. She's the night owl now. I get in the bed. But we still do set up late or sometimes comment often as to God's blessings and His goodness in our lives. We hear about God's goodness upon your lives or the lives of others, and we'll recount that. I'm just quite sure, Brother Lynn and Brother Troy, I'm just quite sure before the day's out, we have a busy day before us today. But I'm quite sure we'll come back together on the couch. She'll be on the couch, I'll be in my chair, and I'll probably talk about uh, the bit of shouting, though it was brief, The bit of utterance from you two preachers in the service today of rejoicing. I told both of these men during the fellowship song, worship. Help yourself Worship. You have a right to worship God. You don't have to let anybody steal that from you. Worship when God does a work in your life. And you learn of God or you witness God doing a work in someone else's life. It does resurface in your own life. After the healing of this man, he's found of the Lord in the temple. The Bible says again in verse number 14, Afterward Jesus findeth him in the temple and said unto him, Behold, thou art made whole, sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. He's found in the temple. I'm convinced Jesus went there to have this word with him. I'm also convinced the man went to the temple out of appreciation. Not everybody believes that. If God does a work in your life. That's the first thing you want to do is be found where God is, or at least where God's name is named. You want to be found where God can be found. You want to gather in where God's people are gathered in. I get text every Sunday morning. Often uh, I hear repeated back to me those words at the gathering. Talk about the gathering today. And, uh, and I like that when you say something and it seems to catch hold. But he said to the man, he said, Thou art made whole, sin no more, lest the worst thing come unto thee. It leads me to believe. That he was impotent for some 38 years. He was crippled for 38 years because of sin in his life. Reminds me that sin has its consequences, doesn't it? Uh, There are those who have sinned, maybe in teenage years or in their 20s, who in their 50s and 60s, maybe even later in life, look back with regret. How many of us have uttered that word through the years, regret? If I could go back, and maybe there's not a scar on the body, but there's a scar on the mind. There's a scar on the conscience. When you get to a certain location, it reminds you of that scar that's there. He tells him to sin no more unless, he said, lest uh, a worse thing come unto thee. So there are consequences to sin. You would have thought that everyone would have celebrated and rejoiced with this man would have thought that everybody would have praised God, that they would have had a testimony meeting there around the pool of Bethesda over this healing that's been brought into this man's life, but it's not, is it? There are those who immediately they find fault with the man for carrying his bed he has rolled up. They knew who had healed him. They ask him, and he doesn't even know his name. And then later, he will come back after his visit to the temple in his brief conversation with Christ and say, it was Jesus. That's who healed me. That's his name. His name's Jesus. That's who healed me. And of course, that's all they wanted. That's fuel for their fire. I think we all ought to carry out when we go into this world, carry the graces of God, the goodness of God into this world. Um, I have through the years, I shared with you a little bit of sharing with others and As your pastor, and then as the pastor of other folk who claim is their pastor from time to time, preachers more particularly. I don't know through the years that some of you have spoken the verse back to me. I remember where I was sitting in 2007 when reading through the Psalms. I came through the 37th. Verse number 5 began to live in my life. It's lived in my life ever since. As a matter of fact, for three or four years in revivals, in 08, I preached 32 weeks straight in revivals. And I guess in every one of those revivals, once or twice, I would quote that verse, Commit thy way unto the Lord. Trust also in him. He shall bring it to pass. And talk about resting in Christ, knowing that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. Trusting him. Resting in him. As a matter of fact, I would say in those first few years, uh, there were years before I put my foot on the floor, I would quote the verse and I would say, Lord, I trust you. As a matter of fact, he gave that verse to me during some very hard times of my life. Things were not good at that time as far as what you could see outwardly. And some of the places I was preaching in those days, they didn't know all the details, but they knew enough. And across times, some people began to, speak to me over the telephone or in churches and say, Preacher, I've started saying I trust you before my feet hit the floor. That's a blessing to me. Another verse that's been a blessing to me through the years, the last number of years, probably eight, nine years, has been the benediction to Second Corinthians, uh, the book of Second Corinthians. It's the verse, chapter 13, verse 14, which says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all, Amen. It's not a verse. Uh, excuse me, not a service held around here that I don't pray that verse over. That I don't ask that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Ghost be our lot and our part. It's not one service takes place at Charity Baptist Church, but what that's not prayed over every one of your lives and over our. Gathering on Sundays and Wednesdays. In Bible conference and missions conference. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. The grace, grace he bestows through his salvation. The love, the love of God. The love of God. The love of the Father is seen throughout Scripture. In the Old Testament it's paramount. And in the New Testament as well. The love of God. His love for Israel is seen through the Old Testament prophet of Hosea. He told Hosea, go marry a wife of whoredoms, go marry a prostitute. He displayed through the grief and yet love that Hosea would have for Gomer, his love for Israel and their mistreatment and their adulteries that they would commit against him. Yet he loved them, the love of God, the communion of the Holy Ghost, the fellowship of the Holy Ghost, the partnership of the Holy Ghost. It's like we heard in the open assembly this morning, things that we... Maybe a scribe to want to do. We can't do them on our own. We've often said God won't ask us to do something we are incapable of doing. But he does do it, doesn't he? There's many things he asks of us that we cannot do in our own power. But we can do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. The past few weeks, there's a verse that's been resonating in my heart and in some of yours as well. As we've begun to look at the pastoral epistle of First Timothy on Wednesdays. The second verse of the first chapter, I hear you praying it. I challenged you a few Wednesday nights back, and I say that to say this. As your pastor, that resonates with me. My my radar picks that up. Listen to the verse. He writes unto Timothy, my own son in the faith. And then he says, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, Timothy, my prayer for you is for grace about your life, for peace to be upon you, for mercy to be about your life, and I've heard some of you men already begin to pray that way. I, I was reading in uh, the last few weeks about a, a businessman. He was um, a salesman. He was going to call on some of his clients in the town of Cornwall at noon on the day that he was in the little city. He um, he heard a siren, and when he heard the siren, of course there were people coming out of the factories, and as they came out of the factories, he called a, a just a just a wonderful fragrance, and he looked around expecting to see a cluster, a large cluster of daffodils or violets or roses, and he couldn't see it, but he saw people scurrying about after the siren, and so he stopped a man on the sidewalk, and he said, the fragrance. He said, I'm perplexed. Where does it come from? He said, well, did you hear the siren? He said, I did. He said, well, the siren lets everybody in these factories know it's time that they can go for their lunch, and the girls in the perfume factory when they come out for lunch, or when they come out at the end of their workday, they bring with them that fragrance, and it fills the air of the street. When I read that, I thought about how it ought to be such with the children of God. When we go back out in this world from the church, or when we go back out into this world from our homes, there ought to be the fragrance of the grace of God, the mercy of God, and the peace of God. There ought to be the fragrance that we rest in Christ. There ought to be the fragrance of Of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. The love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost. So it ought to be with the people of God. These people have rejected Christ and rejected the work that he just did. You are aware before God does a work there usually will be testings and trials that will come. The world even has enough common sense to see that. They'll tell you it's darkest just before dawn. Brother Dana Williams, in 08, he called me and he said, I'm in Florida in a Bible conference. He said an old preacher was preaching on the fire this morning and, and uh, some characteristics of fire. He said, I follow you the whole sermon. He said, just want to call and say hi. And he said, that old preacher said the fire, preacher, the fire is hottest just before it begins to wane. He said, hang in there a while. I'm going to tell you, even God's people know that from the Word of God. The psalmist said, Weeping endureth for a night. He said, Joy's on the way, hang in there. Weeping may endure for the night, but joy cometh in the morning. We see that even in Christ, the cruelty dealt to him. We see it in his crucifixion. But thank God it was not just the cruelty dealt to Christ and the crucifixion of Christ. There's coming that glad getting up morning, that first Easter morning when he got up, but first came testing and first came trial. As God works in the lives of men, women, boys, and girls, there's to be rejoicing. You will remember when Christ told that parable, the parables of Luke 15. He told of the lady with her lost corn and the and the shepherd with his lost sheep, and he would tell of the father and his prodigal son. You remember in the midst of it all, in the fifteenth, or excuse me, in the tenth verse of the fifteenth chapter of Luke, he said, Likewise, I say unto you. There's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. Joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. I've seen joy on the countenance of fathers and mothers over a child repenting. Joy in the countenance of sons and daughters over a a parent that would get their lives right with God. Joy among those who are named among the redeemed over over the blessings of God. You remember when the disciples were sent out two by two, they went to preach and to heal and cast out devils. You remember they came back, they were rejoicing because even the devils, the spirits, were subject unto them, had to, had to mind them. God gave them such power. You remember what Jesus said to them in Luke 10 and verse 20. Notwithstanding in this, rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rejoice because your names are written in heaven. And then those who are rejoicing, the Bible commends us to or admonishes us in uh, Romans 12 and verse number 15. Rejoice with uh, them that t- do rejoice. Mentioning our Wednesday evening Bible study in the book of 1 Timothy. That we learned of our happy God, right? Uh, that capped off the end of our section that we looked at Wednesday night. He said, according to the glorious gospel of our blessed God, which was committed to my trust. He said, according to the glorious gospel, and it is a glorious gospel. It's the gospel of glory. Man, don't get glory from it. God gets glory from taking a sinner out of the pits of the clutches of the devil and and delivering him from darkness into the kingdom of light. Only God gets glory from that. Only God can do a work like that in a person's life. Listen to what Paul told Timothy. He said, according to the glorious gospel of our blessed God. That word blessed comes from a word that is sometimes translated happy. As a matter of fact, in Psalm 146 it's translated such. Happy is he that trusteth in the God of Jacob, or hath the God of Jacob for his help. According to the glorious gospel of our happy God. God is only too happy to save the sinner that comes unto Christ. He's only too glad. He's so glad about it. He's happy, happy to save the sinner. We should be happy, happy. We should be so glad when God does a work in anyone's life. There's never a day in the life of the child of God, according to the book of Philippians, that we should not rejoice. You've heard me say it countless times. Every day ought to be Thanksgiving Day for the child of God. What do you have to complain about? What do I have to complain about? We're living better than the majority of inhabitants of planet earth. God's blessed us as Christians. God's blessed us in this country. God's blessed us. God's blessed us. And he's blessed us again. But to Christians, Paul rang the bell 18, 19 times in the book of Philippians. And he summed it up in chapter 4 and verse 4. He said, Rejoice in the Lord. All way and again I say rejoice. I'm telling you, even when there's hardship without explanation, we can rejoice. We don't live by explanation anyhow, do we? We live according to the truth of the Word of God. We live according to the promises of God. When we don't feel Him moving upon us, we still know that He is about our lives. He never leaves us and He never forsakes us. When there's no explanation, no reason why, we still rejoice that His grace is sufficient. Even when we doubt ourselves, we never doubt our great God. What a God we serve. What a God, what a Jesus, and what a Holy Ghost that we serve in the day in which we live. We're living in dark days. I suspect, like many of you, what's going on in our country is probably about to get a little darker. You better dig into the Word of God and find out who you are in Christ. That will sustain you when the attacks of the evil one and his cohorts begin to mount up against you. When God does a work, there's always the after effects of the work. A lot of after effects. As a matter of fact, I was thinking, just meditating at my desk about Tuesday morning about some of the the movements of God in our country. Our country has seen three great movements of God. Lawlessness abounded at the same time. Usually the devil will work at the same time that God will work. You mark that down. But on some of the great movements, large, what we would consider large movements of God, there's always been a burden to reach the lost with the gospel that will abound out of those movements. Whether it's an Edwards or a Wesley or whoever it would be that God would use. Our Lord prepared his disciples for such a thing. Missionary endeavors. They would soon be filled with the Holy Spirit, soon be indwelt with the Holy Spirit, soon be baptized with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And just before his ascension, just before Pentecost, he said to them in Acts 1 and verse number 8, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. At Pentecost, that was the preaching of our blessed Lord at Jerusalem. And then right after Pentecost, uh, because of persecution, the uh, believers began to... Uh, Be scattered. It's called the diaspora in church history. And because of that, after Pentecost, there was the spreading of the gospel. in all Judea and in Samaria, and then from there into the uttermost parts of the earth. I've thought about that and thought about what God's done down through church history. As a matter of fact, God does it right under our noses oftentimes. I was thinking early this morning, I told Brianna, I saw her yawn. You forgive me for mentioning that, Brianna. I saw her yawn, and I, wa- I pointed at her. And then I walked over, and I said, don't do that. I woke up at 2.30 this morning. I said, don't do that. it will have me yawning. That's contagious, isn't it? Of course, she probably worked hard and worked late last night on her job. But my mind, I was thinking on this very thought, and I thought back across the years, preaching many years ago. I won't give you what I normally would give you. have heard it. Some of you can probably tell it better than I. I preached revival at Crossroads Baptist Church in Faulkner, Mississippi, many years ago, a Sunday night through a Friday night, and uh, there, uh, at that time, at least, it was an older church, retirees, and uh, so I don't ever go anywhere looking for an offering. Sometimes it costs me money out of my pocket to get somewhere to preach. I'm happy to do it. It's an honor to carry such glorious luggage, pack such a uh, such a message and carry it across to other places. There's not but a few of you here that was out next door on a Friday night in June of 2012. Whenever I made my case, I think it's. Rather than sitting around watching days of our lives in the evening, if I can get my Bible and get in my pickup truck and travel 30 minutes to uh, 10 hours, it doesn't make any difference share the gospel and perhaps see someone saved by the grace of God or see some child of God struggling. If, I'd tend to one rather do that than sit around the house on Monday and Tuesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday. And That's just my mindset on it. Of course, I've been called, I've been called to do such a thing. But I was preaching there at Crossroads. I don't go for offerings. But at the end of the week, Brother Annie, he said, now, "There's not much here." Had a folded check. And I said, I, don't, "I didn't come for that." And he said, "I know that." He said, "But now, really, preacher?" He said, "There's not much here." We went to the foyer, and the door on the right. He opened the door and there were boxes of canned tomatoes and peaches and and green beans and you name it. I mean, we had a minivan at the time and we opened that wind star, the side door and loaded that thing, loaded it in the back. And he said, now, our people don't have much money. They don't draw much money. They don't, they don't have much to draw from. But said, we take delight in doing this. And I'm telling you, they loaded us down and sent us away. But before we got in the van to leave, I said to Brother Ani, I said, your people have preached me to death this week. God's honoring your labor. And he said, no, it's not mine. He said, Wayne McKee, Brother Wayne. He said, Brother Wayne was here and paid the price. And he said, he stayed until the price was paid. And he said, I've come in now on the heels of his ministry. And rejoicing in the liberty that I have every Sunday. And every time that I stand behind the pulpit. I thought about that this morning. I thought about through the week. I was thinking about John Wesley. And, um, and how God used him, the Methodist. Now don't let that hair lip you or stroke you out. I've quoted Methodists before and you didn't even know who I was talking about. I've quoted Baptists. I've quoted Presbyterians. I've quoted all of them. I read the good, the bad, and the ugly most of the time. Sometimes you don't even know who I'm quoting when I'm quoting them. But I thought about John Wesley. I've been to his house. It's right across the street from Bun Hill Fields Burial Ground. A lot of the famous figures that came out of London and north of London are buried there. It's an ancient burial ground considered today. If you were to look at it, you would think somebody ought to go in there and clean the, clean the tombstones up. Ought to have a little bit more reverence for those that made such a contribution to the world. We went to, Amanda and I have been there. Went to Bun Hill Fields Burial Ground. And right across the street is Wesley, John Wesley's house. It's a four-story. It's not a, not a mansion of sorts. It's a, as a matter of fact, the house might be the, the size of the pews, four stories high. With a staircase in it. You builders know what I'm talking about. That takes up part of the floor space in each of those levels. Uh, there's kitchens on the bottom you can go on up to a sitting area on the second level, his bedroom and his study. On up on the third and floor, uh, fourth floor, sitting right in front of Wesley's church where he preached. Of course, that's been upgraded and remodeled. Most believe uh, that uh, Wesley, by horseback, took the gospel over 250,000 miles. That'll put you around this globe several times. And the gospel was red hot back in those days, and God did a work. A lot of times it was in open air meetings, and sometimes it was in church buildings, and sometimes cathedrals, but the gospel was blazing and was red hot. Uh, Wesley lived. He was born in uh, 1703 and died in 1791. In his latter years, he was saddened that he could not travel like he once did and preach as many times as He once would hold up to preach. In his last 30 years of life, William Carey was born. Carey was born in 1761 and died in 1834. We speak much about missions on occasion around here. Did you know every mission society? Did you know that missions work of William Carey? William Carey saw the world as being white already under harvest, the whole world. He felt like the gospel ought to go everywhere, to red, yellow, black, and white. He thought they all were precious in God's sight. William Carey was engaged in the work he was in. He used his influence when he realized God had given him a bit of influence. He he used his influence to instill mission support. He instilled mission support that, to this very day, mission societies, as we know them, every one of them can trace their roots back to William Carey. I don't care if it's the General Baptist Assembly and their support of missions. I don't care if it's the American Baptist, if it's the Southern Baptist, if it's the Independent Baptist and mission boards there. Every bit of it can trace its roots back uh, to a man by the name of William Carey. But that came out of a movement when God was working. When God does a work, we're not to be discontent, but there will be a desire. If somebody's listening to God, there'll be a desire to take the work farther and try to reach more with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I looked it back up on my phone this morning. I'm not going to get as far as I thought I was going. To get, but I looked it back up on my phone this morning. I've got a picture. I've looked at it through the years off and on to remind me of the plight of this world and where this world will leave you. I think it was in 1993 when Kevin Carter, won the Pulitzer Prize. He was in the Sudan. And there were those who were there to clothe and feed and, and to give medical attention to the perishing, there was a, a little baby. He or she was naked, had nothing, had the extended belly because of starvation, was trying to get to the tent that had medical supplies, food, and clothing. The little baby was probably not much more than two years of age, but people were eating just beyond over in the tent. There was a vulture caught in the picture of Kevin Carter behind the little baby trying to get some nourishment, trying to survive, just trying to get there. Kevin Carter, of course, when he called his picture, he caught his picture of the little baby with the vulture waiting for the child to take its last breath. The little baby was sitting on his or her bottom and was bent over, exhausted, and looking, trying to get to where perhaps salvation could be found. Kevin Carter was, uh, won all kinds of awards for his picture that he took. It was on the front of every leading newspaper. and But a few months later, he committed suicide. You know why he committed suicide? People, once they saw the picture, they were broken for the child. And they got a hold to his address. And some found out his phone number and began to call and to write and ask, what about the baby? Did anybody pick the baby up? Did anybody rescue the baby? Did anybody... What happened to the baby? Did the vulture pounce on the baby? What happened to the baby? Well, I go to a funeral, I'm always interested. We'll attend one today. The Wilders will attend one today. I'm always interested. What happened to that man? What happened to that woman? Their greatest need is for Christ as Savior. That's their greatest need. And anytime God does a work in your life and in mine, uh, we want folk to know what we know. We want them to know. Who we know, our blessed Lord, our happy God. We want them to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Behind the movement of God, we should look for an opportunity to serve Him. Not to, to be discontented with the things of God. Since our early messages regarding the life of Christ. And I'll stop after mentioning a few of these. Since our early messages regarding the life of Christ. We've seen a disdain for Him. There's been a disdain among political leadership. In the land And among religious leadership in the land, both will ultimately reject Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Both will ultimately call for his crucifixion. I'm convinced Jesus wasn't two years old when Herod sent his party of soldiers out. I'm convinced he was but mere months old when he dispatched his soldiers out to kill all the boy babies. You remember that? Age two. And under the Bible says in Matthew two eighteen, this verse always grips my heart. And Ramah, the Bible says, was their voice heard—lamentation and weeping, and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and would not be comforted because they are not. Herod wanted to kill the one that the magi called the King of the Jews. He thought he was king of the Jews. He wasn't going to have it. From the time of when Christ cleansed the temple, the spiritual leaders were skeptical of him. At the cleansing, they ask him for a sign. Everybody's always looking for a sign. They'll even lay their fleeces out. That's not a sign of strength. That's a sign of weakness, friend. The just shall live by his faith. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But they ask for a sign. In John two nineteen. Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. You know what this was met with? It was met with sarcasm and scorn, skepticism. That's what it was met with. He said, destroy this body, I'll stand back up in three days. He said, boys, you want a sign, there's your sign. As a matter of fact, on one occasion, he said, an evil, an adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. He said, these sign seekers. He said, "Uh, I'm going to give you a sign, but that of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. You remember before Jesus healed the palsied man, born of four, they tore the roof off, let him down. Before he healed him, he forgave him of his sins. He knew the thoughts of the scribes, the religious crowd that was there that day, and he addressed them. They knew only God had the authority to forgive, to release sins and the sin debt. Mark 2, verses 8 through 12, the Bible says, Why reason ye these things in your hearts? Whether is it easier? To say to the sick of the palsy, thy sins be forgiven. They or to say, Arise and take up thy bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. I say unto thee, Arise and take up thy bed and go thy way into thine house. And they were all amazed and glorified God saying, We never saw it like this. We never saw it on this fashion. It's amazing, isn't it? They wanted to accuse Christ and argue with him. He said, Proof's in the pudding. He said, you take issue with me because I forgave him of his sins. He said, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to tell him to get up and get out of here and walk? He said, I'll tell you what I've done. I've forgiven him of his sins, and here's your proof. You get up and you get out of here. You get up and roll up your bed, take up your bed, and walk. The proof's in the pudding. He's willing to be a friend of sinners, and everybody should say amen right there. This was seen when he called Matthew. You remember he called Matthew to follow him. Matthew made a great feast in his house. He invited Jesus and invited his friends. Made a banquet, made a feast, turned the feast into an evangelistic service that day. He wanted Jesus to meet his friends and his friends to meet Jesus. What a a wonderful plan. This was all done in the home of Matthew. There Jesus sat among the common sinners and he had his critics because of it. The Bible says in Mark 2, verses 16 and 17, when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eat with publicans and sinners, they said unto his disciples, How is it that he eateth and drinketh uh, with a riffraff? I mean, that's what they meant. How would he do such a thing? If he's a religious leader, he should be in long robes like us. He should be out in the marketplaces, fasting and straining in his countenance to show the suffering that he's doing. He should put on his pomp and circumstance. He should never degrade himself to such a level. How is it that he eateth and drinketh with publicans and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he saith unto them, They that are whole have no need of a physician, but they that are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I'm not going to say much about it, but Jesus did not subscribe to their traditions. A lot of problems with tradition, you know. The fasting that the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees did—it was a prescribed uh, fast the Sanhedrin had imposed, been passed down through oral tradition. They would fast on Tuesdays and Thursdays. You remember the—you uh, remember the Pharisee that prayed that Jesus told about. It. He said, "I fast twice in the week." It was twice in the week. It was a man imposed fast. There's only one imposed fast in the entire Old Testament. It's one day a year. That was on the Great Day of Atonement. They'd impose themselves and their thinking on other people. It felt like if you didn't measure up to what they imposed, you were not as righteous as they were, and Jesus would not subscribe to their traditions. My problem, at least in my thinking, with tradition is that men will so love their traditions that they will displace truth for their traditions. They'll elevate the tradition. And then put truth on a lower shelf. Eventually it gets moved. If that's not corrected. If somebody don't pay the price. And that's not correct. It will eventually get put on the bottom shelf. I'll tell you what sustained me all these years. David Livingston giving an address in Glasgow, Scotland. After a lion had maimed one side of his body looked as though he was a bit malnourished because he'd so given himself. In his missionary endeavors in Africa, he got up and among a few other things, he said, you want to know what has sustained me through all these years? Years of starvation and attack. He held his Bible up and he said, this is what has sustained me. Over all these years of exploration and missionary, work. this, the word of God, is what has sustained me. It's a living book, you know. For the street preachers taking their Bible on a street corner and throwing it down and shouting it's alive. And then as people begin to gather, begin to preach from it. It is a living word. And we thank God for it. Roman tradition. You know what Roman tradition did? It ordered the release of Barabbas and the crucifixion of Christ. You remember who Barabbas was? He was a wild man. He was an insurrectionist. He was a rebel. He'd been a menace to the society. They said, let us have him. You know what it did with Christ? It nailed him to a Roman cross. That's what tradition will do. May God help us to embrace truth. May God help us to embrace Christ. Look back at John 5. Let me show you what it's all about right here in this fifth chapter. Look at verse number 24. Verse number 24. Here's what it boils down to. Christ, in this discourse, he's going to give. says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Do you hear what he said? Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me. Hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. One more time, verse 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me, hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Do you believe today? Do you believe? Do you know him? Do you find joy, delight in him? Do you know him? He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me shall have everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation. Do you know it? Let's stand.